Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was beautiful, powerful. Oh, those are flimsy. Well, I have a broom here. I'll tell you why in a bit. I think I, I mentioned I have, oh, there we go. Look at that. Is, did you know that was for brooms? Absolutely. There you go, Dave. Thank you. I think I told you I counted it up one time, and I had, I, I've had 27 jobs. First one was flipping hamburgers at Wendy's. I look good in that light blue polyester there. But there are still about 27 jobs I would still love to have. I'm running out of time very quickly, and circumstances don't allow for it. But way at the top of the list of jobs I would still like to have, along with farmer and bicycle courier, which do you know is the number one greatest fatality rate of all professions is bicycle couriers. But it sounds exciting to me. But... I would love, so we've skied quite a bit, and I'm one of those people who wants to get there when the lift starts. If I don't hear the lift engage, I feel like I haven't had a great day of skiing. So I like to be there right away, and so I've spent time at, at ski, ski places, and if you've ever been to a ski place early in the morning, you will hear explosions. Did you know that? <laughs> And what I said, I said, what are those explosions? One of the first times I heard them, and I'll never forget it. They said, oh, those are charges being shot into the ski fields to start avalanches. That's a job I would love to have. Could you imagine having that? You have, probably have to just do you know, menial labor the rest of the day. That's fine with me. If I get to start an avalanche, shoot a cannon and start an avalanche, look at this picture of this avalanche. Is that amazing how powerful that is? Well, I think of that image a lot of an avalanche. I don't know if you've ever seen an avalanche. I've seen some small ones. I haven't ever been in one, but I've seen films of of serious avalanches and photographs like this. When, when we study God, there should be something that feels like an avalanche, being in an avalanche. We love to control, don't we? we? We find comfort in feeling in control. But when you really study God, when you really start to understand who God is, you should feel like you're in a massive, intellectual, emotional, psychological avalanche. You should. You should, like we said before, feel very small and very out of control because you're not in control of God. And yet we so try to do that. We try to make God something we control, we define, we in, uh, uh, determine for ourselves and somehow control. That's what they're doing at the golden calf right after the Exodus, just days after God reveals himself in astounding ways. They're saying, you know, Aaron, this God up on Mount Sinai who's meeting with Moses, we're not sure we like this God very much. He's taken a long time. That's the main reason they give. He's up there a long time, 40 days. It's taken a long time, and this is scary, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and even an animal approaches the mountain. It's struck dead. We're not liking this very much. We're not feeling very in control of this God. He's terrifying in some ways. And so would you make us a user-friendly version of Yahweh? You know, they don't reject Yahweh. Israel never flat out rejects Yahweh. They just try to make him more user-friendly, more manageable. That's their problem. Aaron, make us a golden calf that we can worship. Make a version of Yahweh, make a version of God that, that doesn't make us feel so out of control like we're in a big avalanche. You know, I bring a broom to class when I teach at Biola. I've been walking around this morning with this after I borrowed it from the facilities people who graciously gave me a broom, kind of like, okay, here you go, preacher. I guess you want a broom for some reason. But yeah, I bring a broom to class because... I tell my students, look, when you study God, when you learn about God, your brain should blow up and you should need a broom to sweep up your brain when you walk around talking about God. And when you get together with other believers and you talk about God, your brain should be blown up. So I tell them, bring a brain broom to theology class to sweep up your brains because we need to feel like our brains are exploding sometimes. But 
we need to learn to worship in response to that. What do we typically do when, oh, we can't, we can't fathom something? We say, oh, this is, what a funny response, right? Or we say, it must not be true. If I can't wrap my mind around it. Now, we said yesterday that we can understand God. We can know God. But please don't ever think that means we can ever fully comprehend God or fully fathom God. Oh, we can, he's knowable personally and truly and intimately. A four-year-old can really have a knowledge of God that's a true relationship with God. But, but please don't think that means we ever get him wrapped up and stuck in our back pocket. That's not how it works. So, so think about a broom when you think about God. And don't get frustrated when he's so massive in your estimation. Don't be filled with doubt. Say, oh yeah, I'm talking about God after all. Start to be disappointed if your brain doesn't hurt when you think about God. You know, if there's one American-born philosophy, I was a philosophy major as an undergrad, and if there's one American-born philosophy, and there probably is just, it's called pragmatism. And it's what, what works is what's true. And we like to get it figured out. And little aphorisms, a stitch in time saves nine, petty saved as a penny earned, got this figured out, got this all nailed down. We love to get it figured out and boiled down to eight basic principles. That's why my dad's always saying, Eric, would you please write a book that makes you money, please? <laughs> my dad's always said, just, I don't care if it's lousy, just write it so it makes money. And then you can do whatever you want. He's always saying that, right? And, and I know how to do that. You just, it's like eight principles for a successful whatever. We love that. And there's helpfulness in practical things, but, but we rush to that. And one of my biggest challenges with my students is helping them be patient. Patient with knowing God, even when it makes them feel out of control and small. Without saying, what's the cash value of this? How does this work out in my life? Make it practical. Now we need to get it into our lives, absolutely. But we need to be patient. Imagine if Don and I went on a date and we had a great conversation and I found out things going on in her heart and learned more about her even after 32 years of marriage. And then I immediately said, all right, all right, what are the practical ramifications of this, honey? Let's write this down. Instead of enjoying her, right? And growing in my communion with her, in my intimacy with her, we, we want the cash value and I'm all for practical. Ram Believe me, I am. I think what we know about God should invade our dating life and our, the way we spend our money and the way we invest our, our recreational resources and the way we do everything. The way we take a vacation, which is why I think there's a lot of wisdom in this place to take a vacation, which is also a time focused on God with other believers like this. So practical, yes, there's nothing more practical than knowing about God, but we need patience in getting there. And we, we need to know that God is patient in our getting there. Would you open your Bibles to Exodus 33? Uh, many of you know the story, so we're just going to do a quick flyover of of what's happened since Exodus 3 where we spent our first two times together. Moses is told, go take on Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, right? And, and that's what he does. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Yahweh says so. And Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh. I don't care what Yahweh says and I'm not gonna do what Yahweh says. And things get worse. The slavery gets worse. And then we have this amazing, these plagues God brings. And then the, the firstborn uh, saved in the homes that have blood over the doorpost. But the judgment of God coming on those who don't. We have the Red Sea. We have the, the journey beginning into the wilderness. We have God meeting with Moses as no one had ever met with God before. As face to face. He gives Moses the covenant, the gracious covenant entrance into relationship with God. He comes off the mountain carrying tablets of stone that God with his own finger writes these laws and he brings them down, his face glowing because of this meeting. And he finds his people, the people he needs to lead, worshiping a golden calf having a pagan orgy. I've had disappointing experiences in ministry. 
<laughs> but they don't, I mean, and, that, and they've been pretty, pretty rough stuff. I could tell you some stories, and Richard's been so helpful to think through. You know, ministry is, is not for the faint of heart, and you need a, an ability to not just be defeated in discouragement, but my goodness, Moses is up against it, isn't it? You know, it's bad enough when the Egyptians, when the pagans are after you, but when it's your own people, that's where the real challenge comes. Those are the ones who can really hurt you. Those are the ones who can really bring the challenge. You expect it from the outside, but when it comes to your own people, he's got to lead this stiff-necked people. He's just had an experience with God that nothing can compare with, and he looks at these people and he says, this, this, can't, this can't work. How in the world can I lead these people? I've been through building fund and campaigns too, as Richard was talking about this morning. They, they can divide churches. These are challenges, but here, talk about a leader who is poised to be incredibly defeated and discouraged in ministry. He desperately needs God to help him believe he can actually lead these people. And he's ticked with godly jealousy and anger. And he comes down and he brings judgment and he grinds up that golden calf and he breaks those tablets and he makes them drink it after he mixes it in water. He brings judgment on these people, but he continues to persevere. Now, how does he do it? Watch. It's awesome. Watch, especially when you remember how this whole thing starts. Look at Exodus 33, verse 12. Listen. Moses said to Yahweh, anytime you see all capital letters, L-O-R-D in your English Bible, that's the sacred name Yahweh. If you see capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that's a far more general word for Lord Adonai. But this, pay attention when you see all caps L-O-R-D like here. This is Yahweh, the name God gives Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. This God who's the great I am and the God who's with us in the covenant. Moses said to Yahweh, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please, I want you to remember what Moses says before we get to this. Remember what he said back in Exodus 3 when God says, go to Pharaoh, take on this massive challenge? Who remembers what he said? What's his first question? Who am I? He says, who am I? He's focused here, right? Watch where his focus has shifted to. Watch. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God does, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I love this theme of rest that Richard's been hitting on for us. And this is what God is promising. Rest where? in the certainty of your circumstances, rest in knowing what the diagnosis will be, rest in knowing that $2 million is actually gonna come through, rest in knowing the future, no, rest in him and his abiding presence, whatever the circumstances. And I will give you rest. And listen to Moses, listen how desperate he is for God. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Let's call the whole thing off, he's saying. Is it not in your going with us that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That's what Moses wants from God to know who God is by seeing his glory. Now, we'll, we'll pick up next, next uh, tomorrow how God does that and how he ultimately does it in Christ. But for now, I just want you to appreciate the questions Moses is asking. He starts off all focused on himself. Do you remember? Actually, let's go back there. Keep your finger in 33 and go back to three. I want you to see it. I want you to see how dramatically Moses' focus has shifted here. Look at 311. Exodus 3.11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Moses said, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. Moses said, Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. 
And listen to what the Lord says. The Lord said, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else. <gasps> no wonder the Lord's anger is kindled against him. He's just not getting it. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. See, he's on a very intentional effort to make sure he knows who he is. Verse 2, I am Yahweh. Verse 6, I am Yahweh. Verse 7, I am Yahweh. Verse 8, I am Yahweh. You think he's got an agenda? Moses is desperate, and what does God do? He signs him up for a theology class. That's what he does. He signs him up for a, theo- a lesson in who God is. He does, he's not giving him practical ministry skills or all sorts of emphasis on himself. No, he's following Moses' lead that he finally gets to in 33. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. Moses just isn't getting it. What? Look at verse 12. Behold, the people of Israel did not listen to me. How shall Pharaoh listen to me? Look at verse 30 of chapter 6. Moses said to the Lord, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh listen to me? Do you see here? God is trying to teach Moses that he needs to be radically God-centered, but instead he continues to be radically Mozo-centered, right? He's Mozo-centric, not Theocentric. And he needs to go through this process that we all need to go through. Now, I find great comfort in the fact that God is patient with Moses in this, and even Moses needed a very significant process to get him there. And I love that God loves this process. We're so impatient with human history and our own history. God isn't. You know, when Moses says, show me your glory, show me your ways, I need to know who you are. If I'm going to continue to lead these people, I need to know who you are. I'm so glad. I was just talking to a brother this morning. Uh, who says, you know, if I were God, I wouldn't do it this way. And we just said, let's just thank God right now that we're not God, and we're not doing it the way we would. But we can think that way, right? If I were God, I I know how I would have reacted in this moment in chapter 33. I would have said, I just know my impatient nature, my my critical spirit, my difficulty in, in, in striving with people. I would have said, Moses, You want me to show you my glory? Oh, so the burning bush wasn't quite sufficient for that, I suppose. Show you my glory, show you my ways. Well, the Nile turning to blood didn't do the trick for you, bud, right? The 10 plagues didn't do it. The angel of death passing over the doorpost with blood. And the parting of the Red Sea wasn't quite enough of a display of my glory, was it? And closing it then on the armies of Egypt. Didn't quite do the trick. And then 40 days on Mount Sinai, Moses, you were glowing you had so much of a display of my glory. And you want just some more. It wasn't quite enough. You're not quite there yet. Okay, bud, you're fired. I'm starting over. You are useless. That's, I know that would have been my instinct. But God is not like I am at all in this. He strives with us. He says, you're getting to Moses. Now we're cooking. Now we're making some progress, Moses. You're finally asking the right questions in desperation. You don't quite believe it sufficiently, but I'm going to meet you right where you are. And I love that you're finally asking the right questions. And the right question ultimately is show me your glory. Dear ones, this is the question of our lives. I know how I am. I wake up in the morning and my mind is flooded with that difficult conversation I have to have today. And, and that challenging uh, project I have to work on, and, and th- this meeting I have, and this difficulty in my church, and the things at Biola that I, I'm part of administratively, and, and my family issues, and raising my kids to love the Lord when I can't change their hearts. I wake up and my mind is flooded with all these things that could discourage me and beat me up and wear me out. And I I can just have this instinct to say, oh, solve that, Lord, and solve that and fix that and get me through this day and just get me through this day unscathed. And I need to wake up and by far my overriding concern and question has got to be, Lord, today, will you show me who you are? Will you show me your glory? And whatever that means, And if it's something that just completely blindsides me in a tragic way today, last year, a dear friend of ours and a godly, incredible man in our church, Phil Davis, 
was just driving home like he did every night. And, and on this secondary road, a kid was going 110 miles an hour and just, just hit, hit Phil head on as he's waiting at a light. Died instantly. You know, what then? What, do I just want to fix that and solve that? And, or do I want to say, Lord, would you show us all your glory in this? Would you show us who you are? Would you show us your glory? This is something that we hear a lot as Christians. Oh, glory to God. It's all about God's glory, 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 glory. And I love that. And it should be. And it is. But again, like I've been saying all week, we need to know what we mean by these words. It's amazing how, how often we're not just not even sure what we mean by all these words. And I love it when people point us to this. So Sidney McLaughlin, I, I was a hurdler. And I ran hurdles, I ran track, I love track, and I was a hurdler, and I love the hurdles. It was just one of the most glorious feelings in the world. Look at Sydney McLaughlin, uh, who broke her own world record this week, winning the gold medal in the 400-meter hurdles in Tokyo. Listen to what she said after she won the gold medal. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is always set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Is that beautiful? Is that great? I, yes, look at that. Do you know, isn't it amazing how our Olympic athletes, many of whom has not been jaded by professional athletics for very long, it still have this beautiful freshness and desire to make an impact for the name of Jesus. It's incredible. Do you know athletes are by far, by, per capita, far more religious than non-athletes? So are farmers, so are poor people, so are women for that matter. Uh, it, people who feel a sense of dependence very often are led to God. And athletes daily get to the end of themselves. They realize this whole thing can go with one Achilles tendon. And so, so I love these athletes who are standing up for Jesus so committedly. We're, we're friends with the Felix family. Allison Felix, most decorated female track runner of all time. Is, is she's running tomorrow, maybe this evening in, in, uh, in Japan. But, but she is a devout Christian, and it's about the glory of God there. I love this. So if that's what we're going to be saying, if that's what we're going to be applauding, we better know what we're talking about. So what's the glory of God? Let's talk about the glory of God. Here's a definition of it. It's literally weight in both the Hebrew and Greek words, kavod and doxa. And it, it means heaviness or weight. And God's glory then means the manifestation of the excellence of his character. So it's God showing himself, not just sort of in a benign way, but in a way that declares his excellence in an unmistakable way. It shows the excellence of his character, who he is in his essence. It's to display another showing word in his holiness that we've talked about and his worthiness. What we do when we worship like we do is to ascribe to God his weighty worth. The word worship is rooted in this word worth. The worship of God is what we declare when we worship together. And then I love this definition in its conclusion in, in beauty. It's not just excellence. It's not just holiness. It's not just worthiness. It's something that leaves you with a sense of, ah. Oh. Beauty brings a kind of rest, doesn't it? I, I've, I've just had great conversations with Richard this week, and I know how important rest is to him because it's important to God. Just like God says to Moses, I'll give you rest, Sabbath, shalom, right? The city of peace is what Jerusalem is, right? Shalom, and that's what he's leading us to. And beauty is this idea of, oh, it's, it's beautiful. It's very, it's sort of the other side of perfection. Perfection means that God doesn't lack any desirable quality. Beauty is the emphasis on him possessing all desirable qualities. That's what beauty is. And so it's his holiness and worth in beauty. Now, that is the root of the definition of glory. We don't mostly use it this way. We mostly use it in the secondary part of this definition, which is giving glory to God, and that's what it is. Above all, give glory to God is what is painted on the gym at Biola University. Give glory to God. We want to give him glory. And that's the second part of the definition. 
Honor and adoration expressed in response to the first part of the definition. And it's very important to ground the second part in the first part. Just a second, I gotta open this up. Oh, I missed it. I'll be right back. I can't do two things at once, so I'm gonna stop talking until now. Oh, it still didn't work. I'm really gonna stop talking. Um, so, so we, we have to ground the, the second part of this definition, give glory to God, in the first part, or else we'll start to think that word give implies lack in God, right? Because usually when we give, it's because logically they don't have what we're giving, which is why it's actually quite a silly thing to say when someone gives you a gift, you didn't have to do that, to which we should say, I know that's why it's called a gift, right? Not a wage, right? A gift. It's what is given, not because it's compulsion. It's, it, so we give glory to God. And actually, I have, I, I'm not saying anybody should, should do this, but I avoid the word give when I say give God glory. And I th- because I don't want people to be misled in thinking I give God something he lacks when I give him glory. I, I ascribe, I attribute. It's like when I say, my wife is beautiful, and my wife is brilliant, and my wife is funny. When I say these things about her, I'm not making her those things. I'm simply acknowledging what's obviously true. And that's what's true of God. We ascribe him glory. We attribute him glory And because we've come to see that glory, we recognize that glory for what it is. So it's this weightiness in the glory of God, the manifestation of who God is should be more weighty to us than anything else in the world. But he often isn't. I love this quotation by David Wells. Listen to what it says. I have it it up here, I believe. Yes, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he's ethereal, that actually doesn't have weight, but rather he's become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. He's lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pulses of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. And Wells concludes this way, that is weightlessness. It's a condition we've assigned him after having nudged him out to the periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rumbles on, and he is but a speck in its path. Of course, he isn't those things, but in our estimation, very often, God becomes more and more peripheral, and we appeal to his existence and reality when we feel a need for it, but otherwise, he should keep to himself and not invade our lives entirely. And God is reduced to a self-help coach when we feel like we need him somebody who makes my life better with his existence, rather than realizing we were created to glorify our creator with the lives he's given us. And we can't get that flipped. And God can become a celestial bellhop to us instead of our creator that we are to live to glorify. And I don't want there to be any doubt in your mind that the glory of God is what our lives are about. And I don't want to wait to get to Jesus. I want to get to him right now. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 4 says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's creation, Genesis 1, right there, right? Let there be light. That same creator God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, studying who God is, learning who God is can feel like it being in an avalanche, but there's this beautiful simplicity in it because it ultimately terminates and is defined in a person who has a face and a name, Jesus. And so in the midst of the magnitude of God, there's this beautiful, clarifying simplicity to who he is in Jesus, who not just we can relate to, but related to us. You know, what's worse than someone who's condescending? There are few character traits we despise more in a person than that they're condescending, that they actually have this thought that to relate to me, they need to come down to my level. Uh Uh-uh, we hate condescension, don't we? But what we need to realize 
is that with God, for him to relate to us, condescension is a necessary and glorious attribute. He does condescend. He does lower himself to our level. A word made in his image, but the psalmist is right when he ponders, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. But he does staggeringly, wonderfully, he does. And he comes to our level and he relates to us as much as he can. And he does it in Jesus. He does it in God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Please realize that God created us for his glory. That's why we exist more than anything else. And this is the way to really find life. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed, who I made. Those who are living according to their divine intention are the ones glorifying God. He says, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my name. That's why we exist, for a God-exalting, God-glorifying, God-worshipping, God-adoring, God-dependent life. Jesus is born, I'm doing a massive flyover. We could look at hundreds of verses that bear this out. We're just doing a massive biblical flyover. And don't miss the methodology here. You know, there are, we sort of have two kinds of churches in, in the United States these days. We have, we have churches that say, you know, we're going to do topical sermons and we'll sprinkle the Bible in. And then you have churches that say, that's not what we do. We do exegetical sermons. So we bury our nose in the Bible in a passage and you get in here and you say, and you see this, these locusts are Huey helicopters in the future. And, and we, 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 we say, wow, I know a lot about Greco-Roman backgrounds now, but I'm not sure what in the world this has to do with me or my life because we're exegetical. Right? But, but I, I want you to realize that it's good that we preach through books of the Bible at our church and bear down on passages, but we always try to do it in a way where you get the big picture. Like, like we've been saying all week, right? You can't just isolate verses. You've got to see the big story and where this particular passage is fitting in in the big redemptive story God is teaching us. And he's teaching us that it's all about his glory throughout the Bible. I just want you to get a, get a big fly over here and see how, how comprehensively throughout redemptive history this theme is. Jesus is born to give glory to God, right? What do the, the angels say? Glory to God in the highest. That, that's what the birth is about. Jesus goes to the cross for the glory of God. Look what he prays in John 12. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, we're on the same page, son. I have glorified it and I'll glorify it again. See, it's about the glory of God manifesting who God is through the life of the son, the God man in our place. He redeems us for his glory, not just for our redemption. As glorious as that is, he redeems us for what? Look at Ephesians 1. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that, don't stop memorizing there. In order that, here's the causal connection. In order that, we were the first open. Christ might be the praise of his glory. That's what it's about. He empowers us to live our lives individually for his glory, not just so that we'll have holy lives, but so that he'll be glorified by those holy lives. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If, if anyone serves, it should be with the strength God provides. So that, there it is again, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And then here Peter can't help but just burst into praise. I just love this. One of my mentors, Robert Coleman. He was one of these guys who lived in the presence of God in a way where he never even felt the need to say, hey, let's pray. He just starts praying. Or let's, let's worship God. No, he'd just start singing in the car. Or he'd be talking, and I think he was talking to me, and I'd look over, he's driving the car, he's talking to God. It, there, it was seamless for him. And that's what's going on with Peter here. He says, as, as he's talking about what God has done in us and why we do this, he says, to him be glory and power forever and ever. He just bursts into a little moment of worship there. And collectively as the people of God, what is our life about? What are our lives about? Look at 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Here it is again. That, see the, see the, cause, the, the reason for all of it? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
The purpose of our lives, the purpose of your life, the purpose of all of human history is the glory of God. Look at Hebrews 2, I mean Habakkuk 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that expression. How exactly do the waters cover the sea? Well, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah, comprehensively, holistically, right? Not ever independently. That's how massively God's glory will be on display. And so his goal for us then is all about his glory, that we'd enjoy him and the glory we see of him ultimately in the face of Jesus and that we'll share in that glory forever. Listen to Jesus again in John 17. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and see my glory the glory you've given me before the creation of the world. Is that beautiful? That's what we're invited into. See, we can make the Christian life so small. Gotta have good families, that's great, and that's a way to glorify God. But if that's what it's all about, not connected to the ultimate goal of all of it, gotta have real well-running churches and successful ministries and and, and a life that's morally tidy. No, no, see, if, if that's all it is, just join the Boy Scouts. If that's all it is, just, just be a social worker. Now, this is about the glory of God. Now, social workers and Boy Scouts can do it for the glory of God. So can Olympic athletes. But, but for us, it's always got to have the glory of God as our ultimate goal in all this. So what does this mean? Here we go, practical results. What does this mean? Mean. Well, imagine the comfort we find and the rest we find and the meaning we find when we trust in God and get on board with his goal for our lives and all of human history, his glory. When we're in line with glorifying God and not ourselves, glorifying God and not just making our home here, that's a great place to be. That's a, a place that floods our lives with meaning. What a great place of comfort. Listen to Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue, the rock of my refuge, a strong fortress to save me. And then so often we will stop memorizing passages like that right there instead of continuing to the goal. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. It's about the exaltation of his name. But if you're not on board, with God's self-glorifying goal that we get wrapped up in for all of eternity. What a terrifying place to be. I don't know what your goal is. I I spoke at Hume Lake last year at a young uh, people's conference, and I so appreciated the young man. Handsome, brilliant Korean guy comes up to me from first-generation immigrant parents, and he comes up and he said, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I love my Christian friends, so I come to stuff like this with him. And let me ask you some questions. He said, you've been saying this glory of God thing, and I hear Christians say that stuff all the time, but you know what? I'm not on board with that at all. This is about my glory, and I think I deserve the glory for my successful business and that I graduated from Stanford. I deserve the glory for that. I put in the work. I don't get this Christian thing. And I said, man, you're understanding what I'm saying. You're just not taking it to heart. But I love that you're really seeing what I'm saying here. If you're not on board with where God's heading with human history, I want you to know that's a terrifying place to be. Listen to how it all ends in Revelation 6 for those who aren't on board with God's self-glorifying agenda. Then the kings of the earth, listen how comprehensive this is, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. You want to talk about a wild image of God, the wrath of the lamb. Oh, look at that terrifying lamb. There it is. The wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? See, that's the future for those who say, no, my life is about my glory and not God's. But the, the life we live when this is our goal, it, it's, it becomes everything to us. It's what we now live for. Listen to Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. 
To God be the glory forever. We live in a culture that glorifies self-glorification. It does. Most of our greatest celebrities and heroes we look up to are all about pounding their chest, talking about how great they are. Instead of doing a Sidney McLaughlin and saying, it's not about me. It's about the God who gave me these gifts. She was asked, you know how everybody's talking about the pressure of the Olympics. And she, she came into the Olympics with the, with the world record. And somebody asked her last week, how are you doing with the pressure? And she said, pressure's an illusion. When you live for something beyond this, you don't feel that pressure. It's about the glory of God, no matter what happens. Wow! You mean you actually can do better when it's not about you and it's not all on your shoulders? Yes! It's beautiful, but this is our goal. You know, I, I love children's ministry. Our children's ministry at our church is just awesome. We have this team of ladies who head up this children's ministry, and I just can't believe how great they are. Look, those are some of our kids. Look at the cheeks and Kira on the right. But um, I just love those kids. And our children's ministry, I'll never forget it. I, n- n- wait. So I'm walking through the foyer of our church, and I pick up a new brochure for our children's ministry that the ladies put together, and I open it up, and it's the philosophy of ministry for our children's ministry. And here it is. Look what it says. At Grace, our children's ministry endeavors to work with families to teach children about the greatness and worth of God and encourage them to glorify God, trust Him, live holy lives, and serve God joyfully. Could we go back to the picture of the kids? Them. That's the goal for them. You look at them and you say, I just don't want them to bite each other. I, I, I just want him to get out of here unscathed, right? And without coronavirus. And, and I, I, I want him to, to be nice to their brother, right? And instead of saying, no, no at all. We want these kids. And for them, what does that even mean? You know, I talked to a woman in our nursery and our children's men, our babies one time. And I said, what do you do when you're in? in and she said, oh, when I hold those babies, I pray for them. And I, to this morning, I prayed for a little girl's husband thinking she'll probably get married. And so I, I don't know who he is. And he's out there somewhere. I'm going to pray for this little baby's husband right now. And for her, and then I sometimes will pin a little note to her so the parents know what I prayed for this morning. See, it's not just about getting the kid out of there safe. You know, safety's our first priority. Safety's good and all, but the glory of God's way better. Right? And so we don't need to wrap them in bubble wrap. We need to help them know the glory of God. It's about them it, it, and for all of this. So who are our heroes? You know, there are people in our church here. The Melissa's are back there. There are people who serve in a church, and they just flat out serve. That never makes them famous. It never makes them celebrities. You know, we don't need one more Christian celebrity. Not one. We don't need one more. It's, we need Christian heroes. We need Christian heroes to define the way God defines heroism because God-defined heroism is about his glory, not their fame, not their success. I want to close by just telling you about a couple of my heroes. Um, Brian and Amy Shaw are a family that has had a massive... Im- no, let's show the other, first picture first. No, that, that one. There you go. Um, Brian and Amy had four biological children, and then they adopted six children, all of whom had significant disabilities of some kind. And then actually a couple years ago, they took in a, another young man who, whose family um, imploded. And, but, but this is the Shaw family, and they're just incredible. We know Amy from our years at Wheaton, and Amy was always this vivacious, creative, artistic funny person and she married Brian who was solid and steady and stable and quiet and they're an amazing combination and they they were missionaries in China for a while but but they they couldn't do that long term because of health issues but they came back and they made this incredible family that God made it through them and they called their home glory view it was never about them. It was never about their kids. And, and they had to have this amazing ministry. And then uh, a few years ago, Brian was diagnosed with brain cancer. And, and the way they have gone through this brain cancer trial for years is heroic. It's all about the glory of God. It never stopped being. It's not sugar-coated. It's not making it any less gr- grueling and brutal and painful than it's been. 
but it's about the glory of God. It's always been about Jesus being exalted. And Brian was, was dying. And they were still praying for his healing, but they, they weren't denying the fact that, that he was dying. And one day, Gen Z, their, their daughter, came, came to Amy and said, I, I'm trusting God with daddy's life, but it is so painful to think that he's never going to walk me down the aisle at my wedding. So they decided to have wedding walk day. And this, this is a photo from wedding walk day where Brian rented a tux. Their oldest daughter wore, wore Amy's wedding gown. Their second oldest daughter wore Amy's um, grandmother's wedding gown. And they got gowns for the other girls. And one at a time, Brian walked them down the aisle. And Amy met them at the end of the aisle, and they prayed for the girls. Let, let me just read to you what Amy said about this day. These are heroes, people. She talked about Brian having to go to the emergency room three times in one week because he was still as active as he could be and he kept falling and having to go to the emergency room, but he refused to stop living life the best he could. And she said, we had a wedding walk this week. Wedding walk? Yes, that's what we called it. Gen Z admitted how sad she was that her daddy would more than likely not be here to walk her down the aisle for her wedding. I grieved and groaned with her. Then the idea came. What if we did just that part for each of the future brides? So on Saturday, February 27th, this past February, just five days after the marathon ER hopping day, we went to church. Brian donned a gorgeous tuxedo in each daughter in wedding gowns and Veils. Precious friends decorated the church and aisles. More volunteered their time and skills to photograph and video and usher. Gen Z wore my wedding gown. And Annalie wore my mom from 53 years ago's wedding gown. They looked amazing. As music started, each daughter was lovingly walked down the aisle. Brian lifted each veil and whispered love into their ears. I joined them at the aisle's end and prayed long and hard for each one, for their future, for their husband, for them to radiate Christ into the world. It was glorious. Brian died in April. I just want to read a little bit of his obituary to you that Amy wrote. My life is yours, Lord. Glorify yourself was the cry of Brian Shaw's heart when he received his terminal diagnosis. It was a consistent prayer the entire life he lived. Brian's deepest desire was to know Christ and to make him known. On April 22nd, 2021, God used brain cancer to bring his child home. Richard Brian Shaw, home in heaven where he is forever healed and in the presence of the Lord. His entire life, Brian was devoted to the Lord. Even as a second grader, he was on the playground at school leading his friends to Jesus. As a 16-year-old, Brian traveled to Zaire, present-day Congo, on a mission trip and forever impacted, that forever impacted his love for other cultures, travel, and serving the unreached. He served at a children's muscular dystrophy camp for several years as a high schooler, in addition to his love for people, Brian had a love for animals that was inspired by his frequent childhood visits to his grandfather's dairy farm. Brian married Amy in 1996. Their 24-year marriage, he was consistently showering her with selfless and faithful love that never failed and put every effort into being a humble, gentle leader. They weathered hard times together Yet this only served to deepen his commitment to their marriage. Their greatest reward was raising their large family together. And he never ceased pursuing his wife by dating her and delighting in her and in bringing her a perfect cup of coffee each morning. Though he worked in a dairy farm for most of his life, Brian 
was more defined by his love for people, other cultures, and creative endeavors and animals. In his early years of fatherhood, he joyfully served others in China for two years in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains with his wife and two young daughters. He was a selfless servant who never complained and set a high example of sacrificial love. He was fascinated with God's creation, and he shared his passion for animals with his children by bringing crazy surprises home from work, including, but not limited to, a baby raccoon, newborn calves, mini frogs, giant moths, snakes, and the reproductive system of a heifer. <laughs> Above all, Brian served and led his family with grace simply by his quiet example. He displayed a diligent work ethic and motivated by love. He was a humble learner who welcomed hard questions and hard times. His strength, confidence, and sacrificial spirit was exhibited in his constant chivalry and kindness, and he had unwavering courage that allowed him to live fully to the very end. He was always sensitive to the spirit, willing to bend and move in any direction to obey God. When he was unsure about a decision, he always erred on the side of giving, operating, uh, opening his heart to his children without families and a genuine reflection of this quality. He truly embodied character by being a father to the fatherless. This is how it ends. He wanted nothing more than for God to be glorified through his life and work. I bet none of you know Brian Shaw or Amy Shaw. They're not famous. But I believe when Brian got to heaven, there were people saying, hey, Brian Shaw just got here. Because he glorified God with his life as a dairy farmer and as a father and as a husband and as a member of his church and his community and on the mission field. Glorifying God takes place in the mundane things of life. Oh, life will bring burning bushes and parted red seas. But life is lived to the glory of God in the things that no one but God usually even notices. Lord, help us to live lives that glorify you. Thank you for Brian and Amy and for the heroes they are to us and all who know them. Lord, thank you that Brian lived for your glory and it showed, not in ways that get in newspapers, not in ways that make you a celebrity, but in ways that make you a hero when your goal in life is to glorify you. Lord, would you help us to more deeply understand for each of us, right where we are in our relationships and the circumstances of our lives, what it means for us to glorify you, starting today. We know that begins with a relationship with you through Jesus. And Lord, for anyone who's never put saving faith in Jesus so that they are then living a life of meaning connected to the ultimate goal of everything, your glory, I, I pray this would be the day where they turn from their sin and trust Jesus in saving faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.